this also posits that a lot of this art is explicitly about the fact that these people are considered sort of like powerless or somehow disempowered from public life, which makes his interpretations of the readings of this art is usually as the kind of hothouse, I think is actually the word he uses at one point of like secluded from life. And operetta tends to be much more engaged Mm. with social change and modernity. This is Sound Expertise, and I'm your host, Will Robin. So there's this amazing book called Fen de Seacle Vienna by the late historian Karl Shorsky. I read it in college, and I found it totally gripping. Shorsky brings brilliant, penetrating insights into the music of Arnold Schoenberg and the art of Gustav Klimt, the architecture, literature, politics, and psychology of Vienna right around the year 1900. I fell in love hard with the book and the world it described. It made me want to go to Vienna, and when I visited, I saw the city through Shorsky's eyes. Mine is not a unique story. You might have read Shorsky in college as well. It's one of those canonic books that never goes out of print and always has something new to say to a new generation of readers. Definitive books like Shorsky's, though, also present a kind of problem. As much as they reveal they can also conceal. The strength of Shorsky's prose makes his arguments about art and history and culture take on a seemingly definitive status. But scholars know that no account of any era is definitive, and all are open to critique. That's not to say that we're just naysayers, declaring that all your favorite books are secretly bad. But it is to say that one important thing that musicologists do in seminar rooms and in journal articles is to take a closer look at canonic ways of thinking and say, What's missing from this? Why is it missing? And how can we fill in the gaps? My guest today, Michaela Baranello, is an assistant professor of musicology at the University of Arkansas, and she spent a long time grappling with really crucial aspects of Viennese cultural life that are totally absent from Shorsky's account of this period. Because Vienna wasn't just a city of mystics and avant-gardists, of Klimt's and Schoenberg's, it was also a city with everyday people who appreciated everyday music, not symphonies and operas necessarily, but the lighter genre of operetta, composed not by Gustav Mahler, but by Franz Lehár and Emmerich Kalman, and a bunch of composers you've probably never heard of. And if we look at the culture of operetta, as we will in my conversation with Michaela today, we learn something fundamentally different, but equally fascinating about Fen de Seacle, Vienna. So you're writing a book about operetta. How did you get to operetta as something you were, wanted to be interested in as a musicologist? That's a slightly complicated question because operetta is not a repertory that, especially in America, we encounter very frequently. Just to start by saying exactly what it is. Yes, that was going to be my second question. Perfect. uh, So operetta is kind of the ancestor of what becomes the Broadway musical. They coexisted for a period of time, but operetta originated more in the kind of mid-19th century. And it's uh, it's not opera in that it has spoken dialogue in between kind of song numbers. 
And it's a kind of popular, or at least closer to popular culture than opera. Hmm. And I got to know it when I was studying abroad in Vienna as an undergraduate, actually, because a lot of these pieces are still performed there. And I saw some of them at the Volksoper. And I was really interested in them because they were written around the same time as the music I was studying in my program, the music by composers like Mahler and Schoenberg, who are much better known names to us today. And I was really curious because this music, the operetta seemed to present a complementary, different, but in some ways similar portrait of Vienna during this time. And I was wondering a bit, why are we not learning about this at the same time? So... That is sort of my mission, is to add, to supplement our picture of late 19th and early 20th century Vienna with more of, with this other repertory that has largely been forgotten in English-speaking scholarship. Cool. So, I mean, I also know you not just as a musicologist, but as a, a really great opera critic. And so did you, did you come to Operetta already as an opera fan, or did that kind of develop simultaneously? I was already an opera fan, and I mean, part of the reason why I chose to go to Vienna to study abroad was that I could mm. go to the see like ten different operas at the Vienna State Opera in I like did that two with weeks. Berlin and, and the Berlin Phil when I was in college. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, it, it still is the place. I mean, it's sort of quantity over quality for the most part, but I was not really informed about that element of it at the time. And so I was already kind of into opera, but I've also like been a longtime musical fan. And so the element of uh, the ancestor to musical theater part, like the kind of fun, the comic tone and the dance and that kind of thing really appealed to me very immediately about operetta and that it has a lot of the best parts of both opera and musicals together. Cool. Well, so your book's on this, you call it the Silver Age of Opera. Yes, it's the Silver Age. So what is the Silver Age of Operetta in Vienna? The Silver Age uh, rather predictably comes after the Golden Age. Sure. So the Golden Age is the 19th century, and the Silver Age is the 20th century, more or less. The Silver Age starts in 1905. Uh, most, it's usually located as starting with Franz Lehár's Die Lustige Witwe, The Merry Widow, which is still the best-known example of repertory during this period. And it's a period when, when opera, Viennese operetta becomes kind of a global export product, and it becomes very, very popular internationally. And the works in the 20th century tend to be uh, kind of more roma- fo- focused on romance and pleasure in a way that the 19th century is a little more farcical and comic. And the 20th century, a lot of critics tend to say it gets very sentimental and kind of soupy. I would say it is lyrical and romantic. Okay. So where do the, what's the kind of origin story of those as periods? Like, where do those terms come from? Is it out of, like, Viennese print culture? Or? So the first uh, kind of histories of operetta are written in the 1920s, which is predictably when operetta begins to decline. Uh, when the art is in decline, that tends to be when people start historicizing mm. it. Mm. And the actual terms gold and silver don't show up till a little bit later. Well, gold shows up first. Uh, but historians do draw a pretty clear line between the 19th and 20th century really early on. You can even really see it, like, in even before Die Lustige Witwe. People are, because there's this, like, kind of wholesale generational shift in composers. People are saying, well, now Johann Strauss has died. Uh, Karl Milliker, Franz von Suppe are all gone, like this kind of trio of very important composers. And we need a new generation. So there's, it's, it's a pretty e- easy periodization. Like, it's, it's one that I'm actually pretty comfortable with. Usually these divisions seem kind of artificial. Sure. But here we had such a sort of shift in composers and to some extent in compositional style that people were noticing it really, really early on. And in terms of, I mean, also, you, you talk a bit in your book about the way in which modernism has really kind of overshadowed our understanding of Vienna in this period, that, like, 
the Karl Shorsky way of looking at Vienna um, has become, you know, we study Klimt and Schoenberg and Mahler. How does the influence of those composers on how we approach the idea of Vienna in the early 20th century kind of obscure operetta as a, as a topic? That's a great question. So I think the the most neutral way of saying this at first is that it's sort of an embarrassment of riches in this period. I, I taught a seminar in this period, and there's just so much to choose from. Like, it's just an extraordinarily productive period. The art in Vienna. Yes, in the in, in, century. Yes, yeah. in general. But the why we tend to prize this modernist kind of conception. So the Karl Schorsky thesis is that there this is... This is the famous book, Van Dysayak, Vienna. It's a great book. I mean, I, 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 like, I, I, I'm sure that any scholar would have many critiques of it. I find it a very gripping book, but I'm not an expert in the area. But sorry. Well, that, what you just said is like exactly why that book still has a lot of sway. Is sure. that it's very beautifully written. And a lot of people encounter it as undergraduates. Yeah, and they sort of honestly like kind of take it hook, line, and sinker. Sure. In a way that I think is a, still in American musicology a bit unexamined at times. So the Shrosky thesis is that uh, there's this, that a lot of the culture we associate with this period is the product of a liberal class that is excluded from public life with the rise of the Christian Socialist Party, which happens over the course of the late 19th century. So there are all these people who would otherwise have been somehow engaged in politics uh, who are now producing this kind of art. And also at the same time that this art reflects this kind of conflict between rationality and irrationality, the kind of thing that you associate with uh, in musicology studies, this usually comes out with discussions of like the Bronze-Bruckner debates. Sure. And uh, this kind of doesn't give you any the this also posits that a lot of this art is explicitly about the fact that these people are considered sort of like powerless or somehow disempowered from public life which makes his interpretations of the readings of this art is usually as the kind of hothouse i think is the, actually the word he uses at one point of like secluded from life and operetta tends to be much more engaged mm. with kind of uh, social change and modernity in a way that some of the uh, the things Chorsky looks at, I mean, not all of them, but some of them are uh, don't really respond to that kind of question. So Operetta doesn't really work in his model, so he just kind of ignores it, which I think he sort of says that like all of this stuff is there, it's just not what I'm writing about, which fair enough, we're all writing about some of it and not sure. all of it, but that book has been so influential that people it's like kind of forget that there's other stuff. So Shorsky is making the case that like these incredible visionary artists are like these prophets who kind of retreat from politics to develop this esoteric, but incredibly beautiful and amazing artistic and musical language. But operetta is not about retreating. It's about kind of like being present with people and re- responding to what's happening in the world. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, and it's more succinct than I just, the way I just <laughs> yeah, phrased it. You, I mean, you, you're doing the, the actual work, I'm just rebounding. Yeah, no, it's um, good. <laughs> so so you, you, you talk about the way in which we need to kind of move beyond Vienna as a kind of temple of art. I think you used that phrase, temple of art. Yeah, um, sure, and the, does the focus, Okay, the focus on the high art canon. So, like, why, why is it important that we get beyond the high art canon in Vienna. Like what, what do we learn about Vienna that we might not know otherwise when we, when we start talking about operetta? We learn about different people, but we also learn about different kinds of issues. So this is the period when Vienna was changing and really uh, very rapidly. It's a kind of late industrializing city. Uh, but in the last few decades of the 19th century, 
continuing through the early 20th century, there's an enormous uh, increase in population, mostly from other parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so the city is becoming much more diverse in terms of ethnicity and language and in some uh, ways, kinds of ways people work, kind of division of labor. Uh, there are more, there's a bit more industry. It's not a super industrialized city, but there are more people who have factory jobs. And Operetta is written for a, it's written for a pretty broad audience, but kind of middle class is your classic Operetta audience. But they do speak to some extent to a kind of working class audience as well which is generally a different audience than our kind of high art, which is written for a very kind of elite, educated, liberal class for the most part. Interesting. So, so it tells us about things like these changes in labor and changes in kind of gender roles and things like that. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the, like maybe one or two of the, the composers who are most active that you're looking at, what kind of work they were doing, like how did it reach the stage? Mm-hmm. So the I'll talk about two composers I'm looking at. The first is Franz Lehár, who's probably the best known name because his The Merry Widow is still performed a whole lot. Is he Hitler's famous composer or no? Yes, that's him. Okay, all right. So he's very, very popular in Vienna around the time Hitler was living in Vienna. Okay. This is covered in a lot of detail in Brigitte Hamann's book, Hitler's Vienna, which is a great book. I highly recommend it as a study of the kind of low working class in Vienna at around like 1910, 1912, uh, really great historical study. And uh, so Lehar is, his ethnicity is a kind of complicated issue, which is very typically Austro-Hungarian. Uh, the press always calls him Slovakian, but he more identified as Hungarians and Hungarian. The Hungarians always call him Hungarian. <laughs> this uh, it's complicated. Very, very Austro-Hungarian. It's it's, tr- it's a great example of how these questions are so complicated because he moved. His father was in the military, so he moved around a lot. His name is Slovakian, so that's what t- people tend to gravitate towards. But he spends most of his life in Vienna, so he's really kind of okay. Viennese to some extent. Uh, he also is in the military and works as a kind of military bandmaster, but eventually leaves and gets a job as a kind of assistant conductor at the Theater under Wien, the Operetta Theater, and starts writing operettas himself eventually. He he studies uh, serious music, as it's called in German, Erste Musik, and he has... Uh, he always has this kind of dream that he's going to write the great opera, kind of like the the like Mr. Holland's Opus problem. Like I'm going to stop doing all of this kind of drudgery, and someday I will produce my masterpiece. So he wants to write an opera, ultimately. Or yeah, an opera, well, like the great or that. That's the kind of $10 million question. He wants to write something that will, quote-unquote, get him the respect he wants. Whether okay, that's an opera okay. or not, a, I think is like a, 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 a question. a biopic in the making. Are there, <laughs> yeah. are there Viennese biopics about Lehart? Um, I don't know of any. I think there's some about Johann Strauss, right. but I'm not sure if there book, are any Lehar ones. A screenplay. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, call me Hollywood. Uh, or like Viennese film, Viennese I don't know. Viennese Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Bobblesburg? Where, where do they Bobblesburg's in Berlin, though. Bobblesburg's in Berlin. Though Berlin, yeah, yeah. Lehar has a Berlin phase later in his career. Okay. So, sorry. Like, <laughs> but yeah, watch anyway. Watch opera, yeah. Anyway, he, he does write some operas, and ultimately his, like, dream piece is this piece he writes, and it's like his last work. I guess he considered he had fulfilled filled his life mission at this point it's in the 1930s it's a piece called Judita that performed at the Vienna State Opera and it's like he finally got his his state opera premiere and it gets completely slammed by the critics hmm. like universally negative reviews saying why is this not in the Theater in Wien it violates our laws of theatrical gravity 
But so Lehar has a rather typical career, except in the fact that he's extraordinarily successful and that he works for a theater as an assistant conductor. He kind of gets set up with some sort of librettists who write him, who give him some librettos. And he kind of has a few sort of flops, but he keeps going. And he has this, of course, this huge success with The Merry Widow in 1905, which touches off the Silver Age. Uh, the second composer I should probably introduce because he's... Uh, I think he's probably my favorite in terms of music is okay. Emmerich Kalman, who uh, is Hungarian. And he uh, has a, he also starts life training as a quote unquote serious music composer. He's actually a classmate of Bartok. I found this uh, funny review from a German language Budapest newspaper that is about like the graduating class at that conservatory hmm. uh, and talks about all the different students' works. And it's like this piece by Emmerich Kalman is pretty good. Like we think he has a future, but everybody forgot about it once they heard the piece by Bartok. That's, that's great. <laughs> and they're not two composers we ever think of as like having sure. any kind of relationship or anything, but they did go to school together. And he doesn't really get anywhere as a serious music composer, really. Uh, he also went to law school for a while, never became a lawyer, worked as a music critic, uh, but he does eventually get into writing operettas in Budapest, and one of them gets performed in Vienna, and eventually he's quite successful and moves to Vienna and achieves success a little bit later than Lehar, but they're working in kind of the same system. And Kalman, I think, is interesting because he's a Hungarian working in Vienna, so he really embodies a lot of the kind of Austro-Hungarian kind of tensions between the two and the kind of tensions of ethnicity also in that his music is usually identified by critics as being in some way reflecting his Hungarian heritage in ways that are kind of... He usually picks librettos that put that in some kind of... puts uh, uses that to his advantage. Cool. I want to talk a bit about the kind of nationalist multi-ethnic component but so you talk a lot about operetta as this kind of pluralist art form that synthesizes art and entertainment actually i like this you say to write operetta is to stand in the middle of things how does that kind of play out in some in like in the in any given piece by lehar or kalman um like run me through how the how the art entertainment dichotomy works on stage and in your favorite operetta (laughs) of 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 what you're studying yeah so a lot of elements of operetta, especially in the Silver Age, are like pretty formulaic. Uh, I mean, I used to always compare this to an episode of Law & Order, and okay. there are certain things that you expect to happen at certain times, but nobody watches Law & Order anymore, so I'm going to have to get a new metaphor. I, I mean, I think, I, you can run the law. <laughs> My students don't form. get it anymore, okay. though. But, so well, uh, but, uh, podcast is maybe slightly older clientele, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, uh, so there's there's elements that are kind of a bit like a kind of, like, the critics would always say this is an industrialized, standardized product built on an mm. assembly line because you are you do expect some t- things like the there's always a plot twist in the second act finale, that kind of thing, uh, where it looks like everything is going to be good and you're almost at the end of the piece, but then horrors, there's some kind of revelation, and suddenly everything is thrown into disarray. That always happens at the end of the second act. Mm. And, but also these are pieces that are written for like relatively large orchestras. They're larger than we'd ever see in a Broadway musical these days, which is part of what makes these pieces rather difficult to produce because they're they're not cheap. They're relatively uh, require a pretty good number of resources. Uh, this the performers, uh, my uh, kind of pet theory at least, and I haven't done a lot of detailed research into this, is that most of them are not particularly great singers. 
Uh, the vocal lines are almost always doubled in the orchestra, and my impression is from the few recordings we have is that a lot of it was like more about kind of personality than it was about like bel canto kind of beauty, which something we could work on for contemporary performance practice. But on this, at the same time, these composers are really trying to come up with a kind of unique compositional kind of uh, kind of local color elements, and my favorite thing about these pieces is how they use these kinds of tropes sort of self-reflexively and they kind of reflect on their own status sometimes even as sort of commodified objects uh and some of them are about performers in a way that is kind of familiar from opera we have all these kinds of performer characters uh and are about like the success of operettas within operettas and things like that you have a lot of kind of meta meta stuff yeah especially in the 1920s when you're getting to kind of late style stuff uh but you also have composers like Lehar, who's like, I want to write a real opera, so he writes an operetta that has like a section that imitates like Brunhilde on the Rock in like <laughs> Act Two of Valkyrie. Uh, so there are like these kinds of weird allusions to things that you don't expect to see in operetta, but it reminds you of the fact that this is an art form that really merges lots and lots of different kinds of cultural currents. Right. So what are the kind of political implications for that kind of synthesis? You write about operetta being multinational and multi-ethnic how did that what did the multinational and multi-ethnic mix look like in vienna around kind of world war one when you're when you're looking at these works there's an argument by an austrian historian named moritz chakey that uh this kind of multinational kind of compromise that we see in operetta because operettas almost always establish some kind of binary or sort of dichotomy or opposite poles between two different things and always tries to come up with a compromise between those two things by the end so it's re- this tension is resolved uh so Cheki argues that this is basically reflecting the status of the multinational austro-hungarian empire which is the last standing kind of multinational empire in Europe. So it's trying to say that we don't, that we can we can have one state that unites Czechs and uh, Hungarians and Slovaks and well Germans, which is what they would say. They wouldn't really use the term Austrian all that often yet. Okay. That's a tense issue. Uh, and all of these different nationalities can live under this one state because they can somehow express their own na- nationality within this kind of larger umbrella of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that kind of conciliatory kind of compromise spirit is an element in operetta. And we do have these kinds of immigration assimilation narratives that I find really interesting that uh, fig- where, where characters like come to Vienna and like have to sort of negotiate their identities in the big city and things like that. Do you see in the response, the press response to various operettas, a clear engagement with are the Viennese public seeing things on stage that show them some, tell them or show them something about being within this multi-ethnic, multinational empire? Yes, absolutely. They talk about things, they identify things nationally very, very frequently. And one thing I really should mention, have mentioned earlier is that this was a large, the composers were, and librettists were overwhelmingly Jewish. This is, whether it counts as a Jewish art form, I think is something, uh, is a, it's a complicated question because sure. it doesn't often engage with it kind of directly in that these, there are not very many Jewish characters in these operettas. And Franz Lehar is like kind of our most prominent uh, non-Jewish composer, but like 
almost everybody else was Jewish, which is also an element of this kind of compromise and assimilation, because this is a time period when assimilation is very much valued in Vienna's Jewish community and the element of the, there's an idea that you can be both Jewish and a citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the same time. Like the state is considered right. a pretty friendly place for Jewish people and Jewish artists. And the opera industry is friendly to Jewish artists in a way that, like, say, the Stasover famously to Mahler is not, which is one of the reasons you have so many Jewish composers working in operetta. So high art is less friendly to Jewish composers in this period. Um, well, I wouldn't want to generalize, but in some ways, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Uh, and so we can see in operetta this, also this kind of assimilation based on class and religion, but also people want, people are a little wary about, uh, things that might protect, uh, portray negative stereotypes. This is something the censor is always very strict about. You can't like make fun of any nationality. What's going on? So what, how, how does that all work? So the censor is a really interesting topic because, for one thing, we have an archive. It's in St. Pölten, which is uh, this little town about a 40-minute train ride outside of Vienna. Why it's not in Vienna itself is I'm not sure. It's kind of annoying. But we have this archive of all the scripts that were submitted to the police censor. We can see what the censor uh, looked, what the censor did before they approved the script. So they went through it with, and with a red pencil marked anything they thought was problematic, and then they wrote a report about the piece. And sometimes they're kind of drama critics, like they say whether they think it's going to be a hit or not. <laughs> but they also say, like, what is objectionable. And most people know what the, knew what the censor thought was okay so they and what wasn't. for the government. The, yes, the so it's, it's uh, technically it's like the police department. Okay, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they do work officially for the Empire. And uh, most people knew what they could do, so you don't find a lot of censor... Like, people don't try things they know aren't going to get through for the most part. And censorship had been... Uh, it had been tinkered with, but it had been more or less enforced in pretty similar ways since Metternich in Vienna, so it's been a long time. And... Uh, but the, the number one thing the censor objects to is people talking about uh, na- national groups in a way that might be disparaging. Because I think that can oh. cause public unrest. And so they don't want anything that can cause public unrest. So the government is protecting some kind of idea of tolerance or coexistence in some fashion. Yeah, I mean, that's a positive way to spin it. It's also, <laughs> yeah, there's I mean, no freedom of speech is the sure. other way of putting it. Those are, okay. Uh, they mostly just don't want people rioting. Like, this is the, the Austro-Hungarian state is a police state, and they really want kind of the appearance of public uh, peace, and they're really, really scared of some kind of national, that their empire is no, going to come unglued. And this is a way of trying to not let something spark something that could become much larger. And so how does the ungluing in World War One? how is that reflected in opera? Oh, sorry, operetta. Yeah, so operetta in the 1920s, it very much has the shadow of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the 1920s are a period in Vienna that, especially the Viennese theater industry, is generally pretty terrible. Like, there's all these economic crises in Vienna in the 1920s. They start much earlier than uh, things do in the U.S. before the stock market crash. Actually, there's I think there's been a study relatively recently uh, that kind of posited that the crises in Vienna were kind of a bit of a foreshadowing of what would later engulf the uh, whole world in a financial crisis. Uh, but it's a really bad time to, if you're trying to make money in theater in Vienna. And a lot of the pieces, people find the surest sell it is something that's sort of nostalgic. 
And operetta becomes really intensely nostalgic in the 1920s. So you still see these multinational themes, only they're very kind of looking back, like those were the good old days kind of thing. And they're revivals of older works. And uh, there is an idea that I I think the decline of the empire and the decline of operetta are very, very closely linked for a number of reasons. Do you feel like that kind of, I guess, cosmopolitan idea of operetta in our kind of current climate of resurgent nationalism is, Mm -hmm. you know, can, does operetta tell us anything about Europe as a political project today? Do do you feel like your project, your book has like resonances with 2020? I would like to be able to say yes to that, but I think as operetta is currently practiced in Austria, it more resembles what is happening in the 1920s in terms of looking back to a, imagined past and that that, yes it's exactly it's a nostalgic because in operetta goes through this whole nostalgic period that's been uh, studied in detail by kevin clark uh in the 1950s where they're and through the kind of the 1970s and there are all these tv movies made specifically more in germany than austria there are these tv movies of operettas and now it's considered mostly an art seen by older people who have grew up watching these uh, productions on tv so it tends to be really pretty uh old-fashioned and theatrical terms and it's seen as music that is kind of has these sort of comforting qualities zooming out a bit to kind of think more methodologically how did you go about i mean it seems like this is an incredibly well-documented period how did you go about researching this book what are the kinds of sources that you found yourself dealing with most it seems like you spend a lot of time in libraries in vienna well, now well, you don't really need to go to Vienna for a lot of this stuff. So there's this project by the Austrian National Library called Austrian Newspapers Online. Oh, that's and helpful. Yes, uh, it's extremely helpful. And it was smaller when I started my dissertation. They've expanded it quite a bit, like quite regularly. And occasionally something would come online and I'm like, I spent the last three months in the basement of the Austrian National Library looking oh, at microfilms no. of this. And now it's full text on the Austrian National website. A library's website. I had a Fulbright and spent a year in Vienna, which I guess was fun. So even if, yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> but it's convenient <laughs> for me now that I am teaching sure. all the time and I can't go to Vienna all the time. You can double check all your spelling errors. Yeah, too, it's not very searchable because, I mean, they, the OCR is getting a bit better. It, at first it wasn't searchable at all uh, because it's all in, printed in Fraktur, the old kind of Gothic script style, and OCR of that is really tough. But it's getting better. And it's more searchable now. But there were incredible numbers of newspapers in Vienna in this time. Like, there was so much newspaper printing going on. And so there's an enormous amount written about operetta. There's also quite a bit in kind of magazines and journals. Uh, There are two really helpful collections of articles about operetta put together by this German theater scholar, Marianne Lindhardt. I will say the hardest thing about studying operetta is the librettos, because they're really hard to get. Because uh, they were printed in very small quantities. The scores they sold, because you can then play the music at home or perform it in some fashion. Uh, But they controlled the circulation of librettos, so the spoken dialogue, because you could put on a bootleg production, theoretically, if you got that. Oh, interesting. And they want to control the circulation of the pieces. Like, they're always trying to find people who are producing these things that sh- who shouldn't aren't paying the royalties. The they is publishers? Being the publishers, okay. which is usually, in many cases, are the same thing as the theater. Like, the Teatro Intervene is, like, a vertically integrated operetta industry. Like, oh, they wow. also have a publisher, and they publish most of the pieces they produce, and not all of them. 
And they're always trying, I've gone through their archive of papers, and they're always trying to chase down pirate productions. But by by only making the libretto available as a rental, they cut down on that. And it means that there are very few copies printed, and it's super hard to find them. So that is the biggest challenge, actually, in terms of sources, is that okay. they exist. They're just in very small numbers. Interesting. And you are now working on an opera, uh, sorry, a second project about space opera? Oh, well, yeah, that's a conference paper. So I'm very interested in kind of opera production practice. This is another sure. research area of mine that doesn't entirely connect and I'm interested particularly in Regie Theater in Germany. And to what, some is, extent, what is Regie Theater, for those who might not know? So also one real question is how you pronounce it, because <laughs> it's, a, it's a word half French and half German, and no one can really agree. Okay. So that's the pronunciation I'm using, but you may disagree, so don't, uh, please don't judge me. Uh, Regie Theater. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, so it's the question is kind of more or less about the G, to some extent the okay. R. It's like gif, gif. Yeah, yeah, kind of okay. like that. And uh, so it, it translates more literally, most literally as director's theater. It's the kind of, uh, it emerged in kind of the later half of the 20th, second half of the 20th century in Germany as being these kinds of radically reimagined versions of classic works. Uh, first plays, now operas. And I think that it is in some ways a consequence of our relatively small repertoire of operatic works and that we are looking for new ways of seeing things as opposed to new scores to a large extent. But I'm very interested in the the way we see these classic works and to what how we sort of envision their classic status or how what bo- about the, them bothers us and we are changing things. So with the space opera project, I'm particularly interested in operas that deal with kind of exotic exoticism or other people that we would consider sort of others. And these are works that people are often very wary of staging now for very understandable reasons, and that they tend to depict non-European people in racist or stereotyped at best ways. Like, what would be an example? Uh, The one I'm really looking at is L'Africaine, the African by uh, Meyerbeer. Okay. Uh, Yeah, you might also consider things like Aida or Monostatos and the Magic Flute. And there are lots and lots and lots of examples. Even Carmen uh, is one that I think is still like kind of unexamined to a large extent as to what we consider about Carmen's ethnicity. So they operas that traditionally trade on some kind of stereotype of exactly. European ethnicity. Okay. So I'm interested in productions that in some way try to quote unquote rectify that. And the way that I'm looking in this paper are productions that take the kind of stereotypical uh, depiction of others and make them into space aliens. <laughs> <laughs> it's surprisingly common. You might think that sounds completely wacky, but I have I mean, a list of like I mean, you go to the opera a lot. a lot, right? And so you're just I like haven't seeing... seen all okay. of these. I so it's really hard to find this. Like it's not very googleable or like otherwise researchable. Like I have uh, gotten a lot of uh help from people on social media so in particular. So who plays an alien like what give me give me a general like what is an opera that has been recast with an alien in it? So the one I'm looking at in detail is Meyerbeer's L'Afrikan. It's a production from uh, the Oper Frankfurt from like two years ago. And it's about it's a opera about Vasco da Gama, the explorer, and he's like going out to find dis, quote unquote discover. Uh, depending on the version, either India or Africa, it's kind of fascinating that this is like actually a variable. <laughs> but the title Two very similar places, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and whether it's actually Vasco da Gama or just like Joe the Explorer. Okay. Also a question. Oh, I see. Translation-wise. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, there are different versions of the work okay. is the thing. There are two different versions. Uh, but either way, that he's finding some other that is very, very generalized and okay. yet still problematic. 
And uh, in this production I saw that I'm writing about is uh, it borrows its imagery from everyone's favorite James Cameron movie that isn't Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, I guess the other ones. Yes, Avatar. (laughs) So literally there's just like a a blue person. Yes, he finds lots of blue people. Okay. Not just one blue person, lots of blue people. The whole chorus of blue people. So this is like a way to get around the race problem, but it doesn't really get around the race problem. Yeah, that's what this I'm getting to. Yeah. You said? Yes, okay. it's Ober Frankfurt, uh, directed by Tobias Kratzer. And it's uh, so it tries to get around it. And the question is, does this actually really get around it? And I would argue no. Like every single bit of scholarship about Avatar is about how it's actually like really colonialist. Yeah, Avatar is super racist. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like it's like. Textbook. Like Fern Gully, yeah. Like you made it a little less literal, but it's still a narrative that's to some extent about, well, to most extents about like kind of Western domination of other people. But my like my ultimate argument about this opera is that that it actually ends up being quite nuanced and ambivalent. But that's because the original text is nuanced and ambivalent. It's not because the production does it with uh, with some text that's a bit more less kind of nuanced about this you're not really going to get out of anything i don't think but i think this impulse that we want have to correct this text and we're trying to kind of recapture the sense of wonder is interesting even if it actually doesn't achieve what it sort of claims to do do you is this going to be potentially part of a larger project about contemporary opera staging yeah, well, I'm not sure if this is particular part is going to be a part of it, but I am planning a study about contemporary opera staging as my next big thing. Uh, I have some other kinds of article-length things that I think are going to be part of it. I'm really interested in how uh, recent productions at the Bayreuth Festival uh, consider the consider German history, particularly kind of Bayreuth's role in German history, uh, which is something that's like very, a very pronounced trend in Bayreuth, and right. uh, the political implications of that I think are super interesting, and they're very much on stage. Uh, so that is something I'm looking at. I'm interested in kind of fairy tale operas and how we often set them as being very, very dark and violent, even though we think of them as being these sort of magical uh, mm. stories. I've looked at some productions of Rusalka for this by Dvorak. So I'm I'm kind of brainstorming for this. I need to finish my operetta book first, though. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. I'm very grateful to Michaela Baranello for that rich conversation. You might know Michaela from the Twitter sphere and way back when the blogosphere. She tweets at Zerbanetta's blog, and you can read some of her fantastic writing at likelyimpossibilities.com. For notes and links related to today's episode, please visit soundexpertise.org. Over on Twitter, I'm Seated Ovation, and over at SoundCloud, my producer D. Edward Davis is Warm Silence. Next week, I'll be speaking to Jesse Roden, a scholar of music of the Renaissance. Thanks for tuning in.